Chapter Three, Part One, of the Eight Strokes of the Clock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Eight Strokes of the Clock by Maurice Leblanc, Chapter Three, Part One. The Case of Jean Louis. Monsieur continued the young girl, addressing Serge Renin. It was while I was spending the Easter holidays at Nice with my father that I made the acquaintance of Jean-Louis d'Amblevalle. Renin interrupted her. Excuse me, mademoiselle, but just now you spoke of this young man as Jean-Louis Vaurois. That's his name also, she said. Has he two names, then? I don't know. I don't know anything about it, she said, with some embarrassment. And that is why, by Hortense's advice, I came to ask for your help. This conversation was taking place in Renin's flat on the boulevard Rosman, to which Hortense had brought her friend, Geneviève Aymar, a slender, pretty little creature, with a face overshadowed by an expression of the greatest melancholy. Renin will be successful. Take my word for it, Geneviève. You will, Renin, won't you? Please tell me the rest of the story, mademoiselle, he said. Geneviève continued. I was already engaged, at the time, to a man whom I loathe and detest. My father was trying to force me to marry him, and is still trying to do so. Jean-Louis and I felt the keenest sympathy for each other, a sympathy that soon developed into a profound and passionate affection, which, I can assure you, was equally sincere on both sides. On my return to Paris, Jean-Louis, who lives in the country with his mother and his aunt, took rooms in our part of the town, and, as I am allowed to go out by myself, we used to see each other daily. I need not tell you that we were engaged to be married. I told my father so, and this is what he said. I don't particularly like the fellow, but, whether it's he or another, what I want is that you should get married, so let him come and ask for your hand. If not, you must do as I say. In the middle of June, Jean-Louis went home to arrange matters with his mother and aunt. I received some passionate letters, and then just these few words. There are too many obstacles in the way of our happiness. I give up. I am mad with despair. I love you more than ever. Goodbye and forgive me. Since then, I have received nothing. No reply to my letters and telegrams. Perhaps he has fallen in love with somebody else, asked Henning. Or there may be some old connection which he is unable to shake off. Genevieve shook her head. Monsieur, believe me, if our engagement had been broken off for an ordinary reason, I should not have allowed Hortense to trouble you. But it is something quite different, I am absolutely convinced. There is a mystery in Jean-Louis's life, or rather, an endless number of mysteries which hamper and pursue him. I never saw such distress in a human face, and, from the first moment of our meeting, I was conscious in him of a grief and melancholy which have always persisted even at times when he was giving himself to our love with the greatest confidence. But your impression must have been confirmed by minor details, by things which happened to strike you as peculiar. I don't quite know what to say. These two names, for instance. Yes, there was certainly that. By what name did he introduce himself to you? Jean-Louis d'Imbleval. But Jean-Louis Vaurois? That's what my father calls him. Why? because that was how he was introduced to my father, at Nice, by a gentleman who knew him. 
Besides, he carries visiting cards which describe him under either name. Have you never questioned him on this point? Yes, I have, twice. The first time he said that his aunt's name was Vaurois, and his mother's Dimleval. And the second time he told me the contrary. He spoke of his mother as Vaurois, and of his aunt as Dimleval. I pointed this out. He colored up, and I thought it better not to question him any further. Does he live far from Paris? Right down in Brittany, at the Manoir del Sevan, five miles from Carré. Renin rose and asked the girl seriously, Are you quite certain that he loves you, mademoiselle? I am certain of it, and I know, too, that he represents all my life and all my happiness. He alone can save me. If he can't, then I shall be married in a week's time to a man whom I hate. I have promised my father, and the bans have been published. We shall leave for Carré, Madame Daniel and I, this evening, said Renin. That evening he and Hortense took the train for Brittany. They reached Carré at ten o'clock in the morning, and, after lunch, at half-past twelve o'clock, they stepped into a car borrowed from a leading resident of the district. "'You're looking a little pale, my dear,' said Renin, with a laugh, as they alighted by the gate of the garden at Elsevan. "'I'm very fond of Genevieve,' she said. "'She's the only friend I have, and I'm feeling frightened.' He called her attention to the fact that the central gate was flanked by two wickets bearing the names of Madame d'Imbleval and Madame Vaurois, respectively. Each of these wickets opened on a narrow path which rang among the shrubberies of Box and Ocuba to the left and right of the main avenue. The avenue itself led to an old manor-house, long, low, and picturesque, but provided with two clumsily built, ugly wings, each in a different style of architecture, and each forming the destination of one of the side-paths. Madame d'Imbleval evidently lived on the left, and Madame Vaurois on the right. Hortense and Renin listened. Shrill, hasty voices were disputing inside the house. The sound came through one of the windows of the ground floor, which was level with the garden, and covered throughout its length with red creepers and white roses. "'We can't go any farther,' said Hortense. "'It would be indiscreet.' "'All the more reason,' whispered Renin. "'Look here. If we walk straight ahead, we shall be seen by the people who are quarrelling.' The sounds of conflict were by no means abating, and, when they reached the window next to the front door, through the roses and creepers, they could both see and hear two old ladies shrieking at the top of their voices and shaking their fists at each other. The women were standing in the foreground, in a large dining-room, where the table was not yet cleared. And, at the farther side of the table sat a young man, doubtless Jean-Louis himself, smoking his pipe and reading a newspaper, without appearing to trouble about the two old heritants. One of these, a thin, tall woman, was wearing a purple silk dress, and her hair was dressed in a mass of curls, much too yellow for the ravaged face around which they tumbled. The other, who was still thinner, but quite short, was bustling round the room in a cotton dressing-gown and displayed a red, painted face blazing with anger. "'A baggage, that's what you are!' she yelped. "'The wickedest woman in the world and a thief into the bargain!' "'I, a thief!' screamed the other. "'What about that business with the ducks at ten francs apiece? Don't you call that thieving?' "'Hold your tongue, you low creature!' Who stole the fifty-franc note from the dressing-table? Lord, that I should have to live with such a wretch! 
the other started with fury at the outrage, and, addressing the young man, cried, "'Ja, are you going to sit there and let me be insulted by your hussy of a dimleval?' And the tall one retorted furiously, "'Hussy, do you hear that, Louis? Look at her, your vorroi. She's got the airs of a superannuated barmaid. Make her stop, can't you?' Suddenly, Jean-Louis banged his fist upon the table, making the plates and dishes jump, and shouted, "'Be quiet, both of you, you old lunatics!' They turned upon him at once, and loaded him with abuse. "'Coward! Hypocrite! Liar! A pretty sort of son you are! The son of a slut, and not much better yourself!' The insults rained down upon him. He stopped his ears with his fingers, and writhed, as he sat at table like a man who has lost all patience, and has need to restrain himself, lest he should fall upon his enemy. Renin whispered, "'Now's the time to go in.' "'In among all those infuriated people?' protested Hortense. "'Exactly. We shall see them better with their masks off.' And, with a determined step, he walked to the door, opened it, and entered the room, followed by Hortense. His advent gave rise to a feeling of stupefaction, the two women stopped yelling, but were still scarlet in the face and trembling with rage. Jean-Louis, who was very pale, stood up. Profiting by the general confusion, Henin said briskly, "'Allow me to introduce myself. I am Prince Henin. This is Madame Daniel. We are friends of Mademoiselle Genevieve Aymar, and we have come in her name. I have a letter from her addressed to you, monsieur.' Jean-Louis, already disconcerted by the newcomer's arrival, lost countenance entirely on hearing the name of Genevieve. Without quite knowing what he was saying, and with the intention of responding to Renin's courteous behavior, he tried in his turn to introduce the two ladies, and let fall the astounding words. My mother, Madame d'Imbleval. My mother, Madame Vaurois. For some time no one spoke. Renin bowed. Hortense did not know with whom she should shake hands, with Madame d'Imbleval, the mother, or with Madame Vaurois, the mother. But what had happened was that Madame d'Imbleval and Madame Vaurois both at the same time attempted to snatch the letter which Renin was holding out to Jean-Louis, while both at the same time mumbled, Mademoiselle Aymar, she has had the coolness, she has had the audacity. Then Jean-Louis, recovering his self-possession, laid hold of his mother d'Imbleval and pushed her out of the room by a door on the left, and next of his mother Vaurois, and pushed her out of the room by a door on the right. Then, returning to his two visitors, he opened the envelope and read in an undertone, "'I am to be married in a week, Jean-Louis. Come to my rescue. I beseech you. My friend Hortense and Prince Renin will help you to overcome the obstacles that baffle you. Trust them. I love you. Genevieve.' He was a rather dull-looking young man, whose very swarthy, lean and bony face certainly bore the expression of melancholy and distress described by Genevieve. Indeed, the marks of suffering were visible in all his harassed features, as well as in his sad and anxious eyes. He repeated Genevieve's name over and over again, while looking about him with a distracted air. He seemed to be seeking a course of conduct. He seemed on the point of offering an explanation, but could find nothing to say. The sudden intervention had taken him at a disadvantage, like an unforeseen attack which he did not know how to meet. Renin felt that the adversary would capitulate at the first summons. The man had been fighting so desperately during the last few months, and had suffered so severely in the retirement and obstinate silence in which he had taken refuge, 
that he was not thinking of defending himself. Moreover, how could he do so, now that they had forced their way into the privacy of his odious existence? "'Take my word for it, monsieur,' declared Henin, "'that it is in your best interests to confide in us. We are Geneviève Aymar's friends. Do not hesitate to speak.' "'I can hardly hesitate,' he said, "'after what you have just heard. This is the life I lead, monsieur. I will tell you the whole secret.' so that you may tell it to Geneviève. She will then understand why I have not gone back to her, and why I have not the right to do so. He pushed the chair forward for Hortense. The two men sat down, and, without any need of further persuasion, rather as though he himself felt a certain relief in unburdening himself, he said, "'You must not be surprised, monsieur, if I tell my story with a certain flippancy, for, as a matter of fact, it is a frankly comical story.' and cannot fail to make you laugh. Fate often amuses itself by playing these imbecile tricks, these monstrous farces, which seem as though they must have been invented by the brain of a madman or a drunkard. Judge for yourself. Twenty-seven years ago, the Manoir del Sevant, which at that time consisted only of the main building, was occupied by an old doctor, who, to increase his modest means, used to receive one or two paying guests. In this way, Madame d'Embleval spent the summer here one year, and Madame Vaurois the following summer. Now, these two ladies did not know each other. One of them was married to a Briton of a merchant vessel, and the other to a commercial traveller from the Vendée. It so happened that they lost their husbands at the same time, at a period when each of them was expecting a baby. And, as they both lived in the country, at places some distance from any town, they wrote to the old doctor that they intended to come to his house for their confinement. He agreed. They arrived almost on the same day, in the autumn. Two small bedrooms were prepared for them, behind the room in which we are sitting. The doctor had engaged a nurse, who slept in this very room. Everything was perfectly satisfactory. The ladies were putting the finishing touches to their baby clothes, and were getting on together splendidly, they were determined that their children should be boys, and had chosen the names of Jean and Louis, respectively. One evening the doctor was called out to a case, and drove off in his gig, with the man-servant, saying that he would not be back till next day. In her master's absence, a little girl, who served as maid of all work, ran out to keep company with her sweetheart. These accidents destiny turned to account with diabolical malignity. At about midnight... Madame d'Embleval was seized with the first pains. The nurse, Mademoiselle Boussignol, had had some training as a midwife, and did not lose her head. But an hour later, Madame Vaurois' turn came, and the tragedy, or I might rather say the tragic-comedy, was enacted amid the screams and moans of the two patients, and the bewildered agitation of the nurse, running from one to the other, bewailing her fate, opening the window to call out for the doctor, or falling on her knees to implore the aid of Providence. Madame Vaurois was the first to bring a son into the world. Mademoiselle Boussignol hurriedly carried him in here, washed and tended him, and laid him in the cradle prepared for him. But Madame d'Embleval was screaming with pain, and the nurse had to attend to her while the newborn child was yelling like a stuck pig, and the terrified mother, unable to stir from the bed, fainted. Add to this all the wretchedness of darkness and disorder the only lamp without any oil, for the servant had neglected to fill it, the candles burning out, the moaning of the wind, 
the screeching of the owls, and you will understand that Mademoiselle Boussignol was scared out of her wits. However, at five o'clock in the morning, after many tragic incidents, she came in here with the Dimbleval baby, likewise a boy, washed and tended him, laid him in his cradle, and went off to help Madame Vaurois, who had come to herself and was crying out, while Madame Dimbleval had fainted in her turn. And, when Mademoiselle Boussignol, having settled the two mothers, but half crazed with fatigue, her brain in a whirl, returned to the newborn children, she realized with horror that she had wrapped them in similar binders, thrust their feet into similar woolen socks, and laid them both, side by side, in the same cradle, so that it was impossible to tell Louis d'Ambleval from Jean Vaurois. To make matters worse, when she lifted one of them out of the cradle, she found that his hands were cold as ice, and that he had ceased to breathe. He was dead. What was his name, and what the survivors? Three hours later, the doctor found the two women in a condition of frenzied delirium, while the nurse was dragging herself from one bed to the other, entreating the two mothers to forgive her. She held me out first to one, then to the other, to receive their caresses, for I was the surviving child. And they first kissed me, and then pushed me away, for, after all, who was I? The son of the widowed Madame d'Embleval and the late merchant captain, or the son of the widowed Madame Vaurois and the late commercial traveller? There was not a clue by which they could tell. The doctor begged each of the two mothers to sacrifice her rights, at least from the legal point of view, so that I might be called either Louis d'Embleval or Jean Vaurois. They refused, absolutely. Why Jean Vaurois, if he's a d'Embleval? protested the one. While we d'Imbleval, if he's a Vaurois, retorted the other, and I was registered under the name of Jean-Louis, the son of an unknown father and mother. End of chapter 3, part 1